Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. This is Rock and Roll Grad School with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. Just two more members of Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show. I don't even know where to begin. You've done so many interesting things. Your story is so fascinating. So... Well, let me make it a little easier then and tell you some things. Um, a lot of people have asked me, you know, what I am. Okay. Uh, ultimately, like some famous writer said, if he was happy with on his gravestone, it just said his name, comma, writer. Because ultimately, it was writing that, you know, in high school, I levitated towards writing little poems and I loved right. essays and all. So I always had this writer thing in me, but I used it in so many different ways uh, in front of the camera mic and behind the mic studio office whatever i used i used my ability to write to whether it was writing press releases or songs or whatever and um so but in the process i sort of self-defined myself as a demystifier because all i ever wanted to do was like find out what it felt like to be such and such, to be an advertising executive, to be a PR lady, to be a rock star, to be um, a groupie, to be... I just wanted to know what those things felt like to actually be them. Yeah, I sort of... Not that I got bored, but like once I demystified what it felt like to a point where, you know, like everything's so glamorous when you first want to get into it. And then once you get into it, you got to balance out the glamour with the realities of it and everything, um, the difficulties of it and stuff. So once I got into that stage where the total romantic side was like, okay, now I see what it's like to be in the business or whatever, then I would want to move on to something else and demystify that. So I think that's er, that urge in me and knowing that I could write about it one day, I always knew I'd I'd write about my life one day, so I wanted my life to be something worth worthy of writing about. <laughs> so I kind of lived it that way, and um, so that's that's pretty much how I went through all these different things. And then just so much of it was just fate, luck, just being in a certain place at a certain time, meeting a certain person, and I always went by my instincts. So. I would pick up with certain people and not with others. And I just, you know, was an adventurer in, in a way of just wanting to know a lot about different ways of living and experiencing life. And I was very trusting. I mean, I could have been dead years ago with the, you know, foreign drugs I put in my body and my behind and my arm, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, the people I, I trusted and took up with. But somehow... You know, it worked out, and um, I found myself in some very fortunate situations, you know? Did you appreciate it at the time? Yes, somewhat. I mean, I have a line in my book. It's so funny because Tony Zanetta, who I just got off the phone with, he's still a great friend of mine from Main Man, Z, Tony Zanetta. And um, I have a line in my book that I probably spent more time working on that line and changing it back and forth than any other line in the book. And it's about, it was about my relationship with Tony. And I said something like, you know, we often like laughed at how we couldn't quite believe we were where we were, 
and that, you know, it, we were getting away with it. <laughs> it was like, you know, we couldn't quite believe it because, I mean, you know, we were put in charge of, you know, a big rock and roll tour and, a, and an up-and-coming supposedly RCA artist when we didn't know anything about that. We didn't have any kind of record or proof of being able to do that kind of thing. And we were there and we were in charge of it. And um, so many things like that. You know, we did little plays in the East Village and because Andy Warhol, you know, knew of us from Max's Kansas City from a restaurant. <laughs> and of course he came to our play and then that's how we got involved with him. It was just all kind of following this, Lucky, I, I must say, lucky streak. Not that I haven't had my hard times in life, but um, they were all worth it for you know the kind of spots I found myself in and people. I mean, when I think sometimes of the people that I've worked closely with or been involved with romantically or whatever, you know, Andy Warhol, David Bowie, and Chris Christopherson, and Donna Michi, and um, Vangelis, and. Uh, you know, I, it's just one after another sting. I'm like, I wonder why. Why me? Why was I always, you know, why did these people get attracted to me and I got attracted to them? It's, you know, it's a mystery. It's just chemistry or something and luck. And, um, yeah, so I did, I did appreciate, not to the extent I do now, but I did mm -hmm. appreciate it, and I did. We 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 all did. We did. We counted ourselves lucky, you know. I mean, it must say something about your collaborative nature and your sort of openness to things to to find for those people to see that in you, and for you to see that in them. To have somebody like Warhol say, "Yeah, let's do this," or, or Bowie say, "I want to give you, you know, literally my voice to write these articles." I trust you. Go ahead. Do it. I guess, number one, I was sort of a born actress. So I looked at every job that I got as like an acting role. I, I wore the right clothes for it, and I uh, had the right attitude for it. I took it on like an actress. <laughs> and I was able to be subservient when necessary. Some people who are artists can't do that. But I, I had this background of ad agency, corporate structure. And so when I took on a gig for somebody like Bowie, I just looked at it like, you know, I was an executive in the corporate structure of things. I didn't look at it like I was a lowly assistant or something. Um, and, and it was a role. I was going to play that role and I was going to play it well. And I think that um, probably, but, but I would, I would be as, as, as much myself as I could be in that role without putting on airs or pretending I knew more than I knew or, and I guess I think it was a combination of my honesty in that and my ability to play the role, to create the illusion that, so that if they introduced me to somebody as their PR lady, I didn't look like an idiot. I looked like their PR lady. You know what I mean? But I think that's like what I one of the things I picked up from your book is kind of exactly what you were saying. You know, yes, you were an actress, but these were all parts of you. There's nothing in your book that comes across as insincere. And there's nothing about the story of your life where it 
comes across to the reader like you're just portraying a part. Like those were things within you that you just knew what sides to activate in what you needed. And I, as someone who's been in PR, what <laughs> you pulled off <laughs> with Bowie just instinctually and even knowing how to take the clusterfuck moments and turn them into gold for his career and for what you were doing, it was just astonishing. Like people should have to read that in in journalism school and PR school because it's it's epic what you were able to do. It wasn't from um in a way it was from experience because advertising gave me a certain foundation, that corporate structure. And uh but in advertising if you wanted to get a whole page in the New York Times, you had to pay in those days like $10,000. Right. Whereas in PR, you could get maybe three pages for free. Yeah. And when <laughs> I discovered that, when, when I moved from advertising to, to, to that, when I, I was like, wowee, oh my God, look what, we can, look what we can do. Look at the power here, you know, as long as you had an artist that was worth it and uh, would cooperate and, and do the interviews and stuff and the photos. And, you know, luckily we had that artist in Bowie. Um, and it was all instinctual, you know. Um, I, I, I had the instinct when I first met him that he was going to be this major, major rock star and could be. And and I also just adored him and uh, was hot for him. And I figured mm-hmm. if I was, a lot of other girls and probably boys would be. Yeah. And... Um, so uh, then the rest of it was, again, a matter of a certain amount of foundation I had from advertising, but then just instinct and, um, and, and trying to be entertaining. And, uh, you know, we didn't have time. When I think back, like now, how you can do all this research on the web and everything, it all happened so fast with Bowie. I didn't have time to go to libraries and look up. He didn't ha- hadn't had much accumulation of American press. I didn't have time to go to libraries and look for an accumulation on of of English and European pr- press and stuff on um, microfiche or that. It was just going too fast. So I I didn't even know a lot about his background. You know, I mean, so I had to like kind of make things up as I went along and yeah. just be concerned with the moment and moving forward and stuff. So it was, um, the Bowie experience was certainly one of the major high, high points of my life. And, um, and the whole PR thing was, you know, I, I have a friend and she, she's, she's very much a chronicler of these times that was Iggy, Bowie, Lou Reed, the whole New York thing and everything. She's a wonderful writer, and she knows a lot about Main Man. I said, you should write the Main Man story, because when was there ever a management company that's as famous as Main Man has gotten? I mean, and, and all of us in it, all of us there, like we're all little stars in a way. And, you know, you think of other stars who made them famous, who ran their PR office and their management office and stuff. You don't know a lot about those people. Us, you know a lot about me, Zanetta, Angie, Lee Childers, people who are fans of that era and that music. They know a lot about us. So write the main man story. It's a fascinating story, just the story of how that main man came to be and what happened with it, you know. And it is. Wow. It's it, it, it's a unique Unique story in the music world, I think, you know? Oh, I agree. Well, I think there's a sincerity 
to it that certainly comes across in your writing in the book when you're just telling the story and that I'm sure in PR came across as well. All of you believed David Bowie was this great artist with this great talent and you you wanted more people to hear it and you wanted to help him reach that next level. And that's seems to me that's one of those things you cannot fake. You know, you and believe we in wanted him. the feeling of accomplishment for ourselves to mm-hmm. prove to the world that we knew how to pick a winner, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I wanted that too. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. <laughs> he definitely and, proved that. <laughs> but he, it had to be there to begin with. We had to be right, right. you know. And he did yeah. deliver the goods. I mean, really, until the end of his life, God bless him. It's a weird question or this sort of simple, simple one, but what was he like as a person for somebody who knew him well on a, with a personal relationship with him? He was fun. He was actually a lot of fun. He Mm -hmm. worked all the time. If he wasn't working, he was thinking about it. You know what I mean? His Mm -hmm. mind was always on creating and, but yet at the same time, when it got down to like the real intimate sex stuff, he was a good actor with that or whatever, because he could, he, he was, you know, he, he could be there. He, he wasn't distracted. <laughs> or, he, he could, and, and even, even sitting having conversations. The, the funny thing is, okay, I went through kind of different periods with him because we met and, you know, in a way I was a bigger artist than he was because I was on stage starring role in the play. Right. And he wasn't really that. So we met on an almost equal level. So there was that. And then we just went dancing at the sombrero and we got to know, and we were like equal, equal artists. And, and so that was like really great. And he was really fun. He was fun. And, um, but he, you know, he worked a lot and, um, he was always make writing and thinking and you could see he was always picking up ideas and from everything and everywhere. And, um, then I got to be his like basically PR lady and stuff. And so I had that other relationship with him and, you know, like, okay, here's one little story. I, I, that's that little story in my book, just to show you one little point of how he was. Um, uh, uh, we were at Earl's court. He was doing a big concert and, um, you know, we were being very selective about who could interview him and how much press he would do because this was a really big deal concert. And um, I don't know who it was, Charles Shamari or one of those journalists over there. They promised me, no, we'd have front page exclusive, we'd have photo, we'd have all this stuff. And I'm not sure what paper it was, the Evening News or the Daily Mail or something. And so I convinced David, because that was my job, to convince him who to give an hour to interview to or whatever, let take his picture or, you know, who we were going to trust with that. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know these journalists all that well. Again, I, I did some research as to who they were, but, I, you know, I had to go by instinct to take a chance on some of them. And so... Um, he blocked out I don't know how much time in the afternoon before the sound check to do the interview and um they said that um that evening's paper, you know, um it would have the story already and everything and the time for the concert and blah blah blah. And so he gave this time and his voice talking, which he didn't like to do that much before shows and blah blah blah. And then 
they were doing the sound check late, like just before showtime. I guess the interview was either that morning or could have been the day before even. But then a sound check, um, which was, I don't know, maybe five in the evening or something, six in the evening, uh, the paper came out and there was just like one little quarter page on like page six or something. And I was ready to die because I just freaked out. That's all the coverage we got. And I remember walking down the hall of the arena uh, up to the stage, handing him up the paper and just saying, I'm so sorry, David. I'm so sorry. And he looked at it, you know. And instead of getting upset or he goes, ah, it's okay, Jerry. Don't worry about it. And he went right back to the sound check. I thought that really showed like, you know, because me, I would, I would have had such adrenaline me up on the stage. At that point. I would have said, "You fucking idiot!" Right. <laughs> but, but instead, he just, you know, he just said, "That's okay. Don't worry about it." Well, the lucky thing is, about an hour later or something, a special evening edition came out, and we had pages and pages. <laughs> And he was on the cover, and it was all, and I, and my ass was saved, and, and, and you know he was so cool, it was so great. But you see, he he could have made an ass out of himself by yelling at me, and then an hour later, he would have had to. But this way, he didn't he didn't make an ass out of himself. So that was one show of him. Then, I think when I had the most intense relationship with him was after I didn't work for May Man anymore and he used to come and hang out in my apartment all the time in Chelsea uh, mm-hmm. that's when he was on coke and I happened to be you know Norman Fisher's one of his best friends Norman Fisher was the mm-hmm. king of coke in New York and I used to get it for David and everything and then he and Norman became incredible friends and so he used to hang out at my apartment a lot. I didn't do coke. I wasn't a cokehead. Uh, you know, I smoked pot and drank coffee, and he just sat all night and did his coke, and I stayed up with him. But that's when we had the most intense talks and things yeah. that weren't strictly about business. We weren't rushing to catch the next train or plane or car. And that's when and, – and he was really high in those days. <laughs> And that's when he got really out there and, you know, got into conversations, you know, esoteric stuff and stuff I didn't really even know about. A lot, a lot of which I've learned about and studied about since, but a lot of, a lot of stuff back then about magic and mathematics and Pythagoras and, you know, uh, cosmic stuff and literary stuff. And, and I enjoyed it. He was educating me. He was very smart about all that stuff. I have nothing, nothing negative to say about the guy. Honest to God, he was, he was cool. He was yeah. really cool. Was that cool? Wow. You know. And you've had these relationships with artists and musicians throughout your life. And you, in the book, you're constantly reading diary entries and poetry and your your relationship with all these people you're you're spending time with chris christopherson and leon russell and his band and i i it's a very long list of people you knew and hung out with when you started you know you had the the columns you were writing for bowie and then i think pop tart came out after that and then you started writing music and and songs what did you take from all these people you got to learn at their feet and see how they did it. They all worked really hard. They all worked a lot of the time at what they did, you know. Uh, And 
they had a sense of self. I remember when I first worked, when Sting was my bass player, and um, I thought he was so stuck up in a way because he already had such a strong sense of self. Um, I never had that, really. Not that's not like that. I mean, because uh, I, I was a demystifier, I wanted to move on to the next thing. But those who want to who set their sights on something like being a rock star, end all, be all, or being a great composer, end all, be all. They're they're very single-minded about that, and um, you know nothing's going to stand in their way. And um, you know I don't think they're the kind of people to fall in love with if you want a normal kind of love relationship, <laughs> because there's a part of them you're never going to own, you know. Any mm-hmm. any artist really, but especially these these ones who are single-minded about what they want, and um, you know, and also that um, you know they sometimes could get the reputation of being a monster because they want what they want the way they want it. I say they because I was very loose with this stuff. I made a few demands about what I wanted, but really I wasn't a diva who made demands. Uh, But basically, you find these people right from the beginning, they sort of seem to be demanding in some ways or difficult. And it's not. It's really just that they have their own vision and they're going to fulfill it no matter what. And they don't want people who around them who can't fulfill it and they don't want people to stand in their way or so um one of the things i learned is that i didn't want that i i i guess i never really sought the huge amount of fame that some people seek i knew a little bit of it could be a lot of fun and be useful but mm-hmm. i also saw that a lot of it became a prison yeah. Too much fame, and you lose your freedom. And uh, I didn't want to lose that. So I learned a lot about what I wanted just from seeing them. And, um, you know, I think that's why ultimately I wanted to be recognized as a writer because I didn't want the pressure of having to be a performer forever, having to, like, you know, worry about. I didn't want to get plastic surgery and do all the glamour <laughs> stuff. I wanted to be comfortable um, in my clothes. I didn't need, I never craved the, the mansion. God knows I've been a guest in enough of them. But I never craved the ownership. I never owned a house or anything. I was an apartment you know, renter because that was more, I could move on easier and less responsibility. I was always seeking freedom more. And I realized that, you know, that kind of fame that some people achieve, it really isolates them from a lot of the world, you know, and um, and it becomes a prison for a lot of them. So I learned a lot, you know, um, and also that they could be a lot of fun and really cool people and, um, you know, trust in you and stuff and but if you didn't deliver, you were gone, you know? One of the things I noticed throughout your entire book, too, is to that point, your work ethic was 
unreal. There are so many times in the book, you're out in these incredible settings, even that first night with Bowie, and you're either first thing in the morning back at the ad agency, or in that instance, you've got the contract typed up, ready to go by breakfast. And to be able to make that shift is very commendable. I mean, I've been at parties with cover bands that I didn't want to leave and go to work in the morning, let alone the most brilliant artists of an era. <laughs> no, I, uh, my mother worked and my father worked, my sister's brother worked and, you know, we came from nothing really and we had to work and um, my parents did instill good work ethic. I mean, my mother was always, you know, she goes, it doesn't matter if you're cleaning toilets or the, you're the queen of Sheba, you just do it well. Whatever you do, you do it well, you know? And I always had that work ethic and I always had that respect for the people who were cleaning the toilets or for myself when I had to do it or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that never bothered me. I always thought it was commendable anybody who worked hard, no matter what they did. And, um, and, and that's just something I have to credit my, my parents for, you know, uh, we were the good Irish Catholic family and, you know, um, we didn't waste and we worked for whatever we had, you know, hard. So, yeah. But, uh, and I like to come through for people. I, I don't, one of the worst things I could ever do is promise somebody I'll do something and then not do it. Yeah. I hate myself if that happens, you know. Mm-hmm. So I like to come through for people, and I like to come through for myself. I like to get, you know, if I think I'm going to start a project, I really work hard till I get to the end of it because I don't want to leave it dangling, you know. One of my favorite parts of the book is, um, to that point, is your story of your time with Ringo and the birthday <laughs> the birthday celebrations each year for John. And I just, the imagery of you in that phone booth with the mariachi band, not there. And then the subsequent year when you're in the apartment with John and Yoko, that story was amazing. That was, it's my, my girlfriend, Nancy, who lived with Ringo, Nancy Andrew. I still, I still see her. I still talk to her. She came in 2010 to my book signing. She's lived in Nashville ever since. But, um, yeah, she arranged all that. She was living with Ringo at the time, and um, I was so excited. Oh, my God. And it was such a disappointment when I screwed up the first year. And I didn't screw up. I mean, they fucked me. Right. The, the band just never, never totally showed up. But, um, yeah. but I felt like it was a failure on my part. And luckily, they gave me the chance to do it again the next year. But I didn't have to depend on anybody but myself. So that's when I went and did the poem for John. Oh, I'll never forget that. Cause John was my oh. favorite Beatle, of course. Yeah. And, um, to go there and perform this little poem for his birthday. Oh my God. It was like oh. definitely a high point of my life, you know? And, um, and he was so adorable. He was just so adorable. I really, there's nothing like a beetle. <laughs> right. <laughs> just so sweet and, you know, so sweet. Yeah, that was a very special moment. And Ringo was really cool to hire me to do that too. And then I was, I met Ringo after that at a recording session of his in New York. And uh, he was, he was a doll too. He was really cool. I, I guess I've met them all, but, um, <laughs> you know, not intimately. I mean, I met Paul once for a minute, introduced at a some event, and uh, George 
a little bit more. My friend Michael came in. I have, I've had like a lot of once removed relationships with some of them. Like Michael came in and George Harrison were best, best friends. And I was best, best friends with Michael. So I heard a lot about George and uh, I felt like I was a little part of that, even though I hardly knew George, you know? So, um, yeah, it's been, um, been quite a journey. I hope it's not over. Um, no. The reason you sort of entered into this life was a love of music and what, how it made you feel and, you know, what it did to you. Does it still hold that for you, you know, now? Oh, sure. Music is, it's beyond personal for me. Music is like, talk about Pythagoras and all that. Music is, you know, the music of the spheres. It's Music is uh, alchemy. It's part of the universe. It's part of a vibration, you know, in a high spiritual way. I mean, I think music carries incredible vibrations with it and is a very powerful force in the universe. So I, I, I music is sacred to me. Not It doesn't have to be sacred music. Any, a lot of different, just good music of all kinds is like sacred to me. Yeah, I still, I don't, you know, it's not like the 60s or 70s where, you know, I would hear James Taylor on the radio run out to the record store, get his LP and five hits of acid and gather four friends around me and say, you got to take this acid and you got to listen to this record for the next eight hours. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's not like that anymore. But, um, at, you know, but I have my moments when I, I like, like, I make my own playlists from iTunes whenever I hear newer songs that I like, maybe on the radio or somebody turns me on to it. And then I put all my favorite old ones in there and I, I make playlists and then I play them. Sometimes I have a little rowing machine in my living room and I kind of row to them. <laughs> I love and, it. um, you know, if somebody, now nobody's coming for dinner, but if somebody comes from dinner, I play one of those uh, playlists, you know, at a lower volume, and uh, and then like I get hooked. Like um, about two months ago, Van Dyke Parks, who's a dear, dear friend. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, royalty, right? Oh. Rock and roll royalty. Baby. Yes. Yeah. He, he sent me he sent me this recording of um, Gabby Moreno. And um, doing the uh, Across the Borderline, that song, Willie mm-hmm. Nelson. Uh, a lot yeah, of Willie Nelson. Done it. And he sent me a version he did in the studio with her and Jackson Brown. Oh you must goodness. go on iTunes or one, uh, Spotify or something and listen yeah. to it. And sometimes I wrote that song six minutes long. So sometimes I row to that song five times in a row. <laughs> so then I know I've done a half hour of exercise. That's how hung up I can get on a on a track. You know what I'm saying? That I can live with it, listen to it over and over and over loud. And then, you know, then another track will catch my attention uh, uh, two months later or something. I, you know, last year it was Brandy Carlisle. You know, I couldn't get enough of that, the story mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, her big hit. I, I, you know, it's, it's always, before that it was Miley Cyrus with, uh, uh, what's that one about I Love You, that ballad. You know, once in a while I'll, I'll get hung up on a, on a, on a track like that, and I can just listen to it hundreds of times, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over and over. So, yeah, but, um, 
Yeah, I'm still I still hold music in that place. Yeah. Well, I also go back to old things once in a while, like Jerry Mulligan's Night Lights album. I, 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 sometimes I just go back to that. Uh, Chet Baker, I go back to so many of his. You know, mm-hmm. every once in a while I'll go back to some whole album from the past and just play that. Or, or the soundtrack of Her. Oh, I love that. Oh, Arcade Fire. Amazing. And there's a guy, Rick Holstrom. He put out an album with lyrics that uh, I don't listen to that much, but as a bonus on the CD, there were uh, there was a side that was uh, instrumental, and he does some unbelievable versions of some old blues things um, that I, I like to listen to. And Dana Gillespie, I still listen to her. She just sent me one of her Indian-influenced songs, which I, I love the best when she does that, called The Mothership. It's kind of a combo... Um, uh, ancient alien Indian <laughs> dance track, but um, so yeah, you know. And uh, occasionally, I'll listen to like the um, listener spon- sponsored radio out here. I'll have that on in my office sometime, and they'll play a track. And if I catch that, then I'll download it and get hooked on that for a while. So that's how it goes. Yeah, yeah. Jerry's book. Lick Me, How I Became Cherry Vanilla, by way of the Copacabana, Madison Avenue, The Fillmore East, Andy Warhol, David Bowie, and The Police, is available wherever you buy books, and like always, we're going to encourage you to go to an independent bookstore and order a copy. Also, you can get it on Audible, where Cherry reads it to you herself, and we cannot recommend that highly enough. For even more information, you can go to Cherry's website, which is cherry-vanilla.com. You can follow us on all the various socials. You can check out our website at rockandrollgradschool.com for more grad school content. And please leave us a review on iTunes. We're tired of asking our family members to do so. Today's show was produced by myself and Heidi Hegquist. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sovey and Sandy Stone. Our willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. Our graphic designer is Samantha Mastonen. This one's for Philippe. Thank you. Good night and may all your favorite fans stay together.